This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. This is Victoria Lupascu, and today we are talking with Dr. Herman Campos Munoz about his new book, The Classics in South America, Five Case Studies, that will be released in May by Bloomsbury Academic. Um, welcome to New Books Network, Dr. Campos Munoz, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. And um, as, as usual, I will start by um, um, by asking you about the project and, you know, just to, to get to know you and your work better. And, you know, the first question I have is um, what got you interested in, in classics and their presence in cultural, uh, their presence and the cultural influence they have in South America? Well, uh, thank you so much again. Um I'm a cultural competitor, and this project is actually the result of an integration of uh, a series of interests that I have had for a long, long time. I'm originally from Lima, Peru. And when I was uh, an undergrad student, I was very interested in becoming a classicist. But it was a very hard thing to do uh, back there in Lima. I tried to develop a sense, uh, a profile of uh, classical studies on my own. But... uh, there was not really a full-fledged mechanism for me to do that institutionally, formally. And that was ultimately the plan that I had when I applied for a PhD program in the United States. I, I thought that I could start with an MA in competitive literature. And once I had some sort of foundation, I could move into a department of classics. And so... While I was interested in classical studies in ancient Greek and Latin literatures, my degree uh, originally was in literatures from Latin America uh, or literatures in Spanish in general. So when I arrived in the U.S., I had to come to terms to the background that I had, uh, which was very much uh, oriented toward the Americas, and uh, my interest, my personal passion. And one of my professors very wisely suggested, why don't you combine them both? And back then, it seemed uh, something a little bit uh, odd to do because on the one hand, it was something of a common knowledge that the classics were already embedded all over the place in the literatures that were produced after the colonial period, right after the invasion and occupation of the new world. But at the same time, there was really a lack of organic or... Uh, systematic analysis of this conjunction of the classics 
and Latin America, South America, the Americas in general. So I started trying to develop a project along these lines. And that was actually the main uh, kernel of this project. That is what got me interested into the whole thing. And um, I presented this project for my doctoral dissertation. And at the beginning, I received a reaction that was, you know, very cautious because it seemed to be overambitious and to a certain extent almost uh, transgressing certain principles of academic writing. But I was lucky enough to have the support and the orientation and the advice into somehow transform this into a manageable project in spite of its very ambitious scope. But still, it took me many, many years to actually get it done. It, it is a wonderful project and it's so well documented. And so, um, you know, all the details are in place. Um, so, you know, you wouldn't, uh, without the story, we wouldn't know that, you know, you, you had to do this adjusting and, you know, kind of um, resettling of the scopes and, and the goals. So, you know, I look forward for more of, of the, the like that is, that I'm sure will come out. Um and um, but you know this book is um, is encompasses the introduction and, and five chapters out of which chapter five stands in for the conclusions for the coda, and in the introduction um, uh, you engage at first with uh, with this very fascinating history of the plus ultra concept, and then you lay out the scope of the book, of course. Um, and that is followed by a very well-researched analysis of the role the classics tradition played, and I'll quote here, in the perennial exercises of self-definition of the new world, end of quote. And you also argue that the encounter between the classical tradition and Latin American communities has been rhetorically productive as well as pivotal for many key historical moments. And here, I would like to invite you to tell us more about the ways in which you envisioned theoretically and practically, because, you know, we're talking about extensive research, um, how, how you envision these uh, encounters, uh, including their epistemological weight and phenomenological implications, and how the plus ultra concept guided such a nuanced research. Thank you. But um, yes, plus ultra is actually such a fascinating term that for a moment, I thought uh, it could serve as a title of the book. For uh, purposes of searchability, I was, uh, you know, it was suggested to me that it would probably be a good idea, especially given that this is a first book project. Um, but I wanted to still preserve a little bit of this extraordinary symbolic potential and historical potential. And that's why I incorporated into the subheading and the operative metaphor of the entire book, right? Uh, Plus Ultra, uh, as you well point out, uh, is a fascinating expression, right? It dates back to uh, the imperial moment in which, you know, the Habsburg becomes uh, arguably the most formidable power in the world, right? The most uh, formal empire in the planet at the start of the 16th century with Charles V of uh, the Holy Roman Empire and Charles I in the Spanish Empire. Uh, in this uh, transatlantic uh, race, right? Uh, demands the creation um, and the uh, 
concoction of symbols that can circulate easily to showcase that amount of transoceanic, right, international power. And something that uh, classicists and uh, students of classical reception in general understand very well, uh, or know very well, is that uh, the classical paradigm of empire is wrong. And everywhere where we look at, you know, form the formations of early modern empires in particular, Rome is an inevitable point of reference and a pangon and something to reckon with. And often something that has to be uh, out, uh, that has to be overcome, something that has to be superseded. Um, that is the case in many, many regions of Europe, right? And it was, uh, Spain was not an exception, of course. So, um, Plus Ultra refers to the ancient narratives of uh, Hercules or Heracles, more precisely, right? The Greek demigod who had to accomplish a number of tasks or labors, right, as part of his own quest. And one of them, right, consisted of reaching the ends of the world, right, the arguable ends of the world, the, the westernmost end, uh, limit of, of the earth, which classical imagination located at uh, the encounter of what is today Morocco and Spain, right, Gibraltar. And Heracles uh, said the tradition, right, set these enormous pillars. And later on, there was the narrative that claimed, although this is something that doesn't come from classical sources, that he inscribed his pillars with a, a cautionary statement, right? Non plus ultra or nec plus ultra, meaning not further beyond. So when Charles V became this uh, enormously powerful figure, in a way, uh, he took over this expression, removed the negative adverb, and left the plus ultra, nyom, as a way to indicate that he had gone beyond the ancient prohibition, that he had superseded that classical limit. And that uh, had two meanings, right? In the first, uh, uh, on the one hand, it meant that he had gone beyond the Roman Empire, right? But at the same time, it had a geographical orientation in as much as he was claiming that he had crossed that end of the world and expanded the world, uh, which is a way in which, you know, the Americas came to be imagined, right? And, and I found this particularly telling because uh, a number of scholars have noticed that one of the main reasons why the new world is new is because of its absence in classical descriptions. Because ancient scholars, ancient philosophers, ancient naturalists uh, did not include or did not anticipate the existence of a continental reality right beyond the Atlantic Sea or the Atlantic Ocean. So the newness of the new world uh, is rhetorically, historically, and ideologically tied to the classics. And I thought that Blue Sutra was a way to start thinking about this as an attempt to expand the world from the classics as a, as a way to 
outstrip the classics from its authority uh, and to define a new imperial early modern sense of authority that was transoceanic, right? And if I had wanted to push forward into this, I would have also thought about, you know, you know, oceanic masses, because the Roman Empire contained a notion within its own jurisdiction, right? There is something about this also in the fact that the limit that was the border of the of the Roman Empire, right, is ignored by somebody like Charles V, who is technically also the inheritor of the Roman Empire as a Holy Roman Emperor. So, so many things, right, uh, to, to, to be said about this, this expression, plus ultra. And as I point out in, in, in the book, the, the phrase became emblematic of Charles V and the Spanish monarchy. The phrase was inscribed in coins and images, in paintings, in uh, all sorts of uh, plastic and artistic objects alike. Um, and, you know, circulated expansively. And in the book, I have a fascinating page of the magnificent treatise by the Indian historian and chronicler Felipe Huamampoma de Ayala, where he imagines Incas, right? Inca lords holding the pillars of Heracles, right? And the caption, plus ultra. So there's a moment in which all these things just come together. And furthermore, he writes... Uh, a little caption in Latin, but he misspells certain words because he writes Latin with a Quechua accent. It is a fascinating conflation of different motifs, and I think that this sort of uh, uber-contaminated expression really, really becomes emblematic of many of the dynamics that happened, and it gave me that type of theoretical but also, you know, a visual element to start thinking about this massive uh, encounter. Right, 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 right. And, you know, it, it explains a lot from this particular position. It explains a lot the um, attitudes or even the affects that, um, you know, emerged at the point of contact or within communities that interacted with, with the classics and, you know, took them uh, further or interpreted them or, you know, so on and so forth. So I think it accounts as well for for not just, you know, the rhetorical or the political or geographical implications, but also for other, um, you know, emotions, affects um, underneath, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it does betray a certain attitude, right? A certain demeanor, in a certain affective uh, and emotional type of stand, for sure. Yeah, and you know, with um, with all these, um, you know, in such a rich uh, repertoire here, I, the project is uh, not without challenges. And yeah, first of all, I was thinking about the linguistic 
um, difficulties, right, in in, in uh, translating and in uh, interpreting and thinking about the historical and cultural context in which these these texts existed, um, but also to uh, you know about all the other challenges. And um, there are a few critical and methodological aspects you had to clarify and solve so that the book can see the light of day. And you know, I, I was wondering whether you could tell us more about these challenges and the strategies you you had you employed to solve or to circumvent the the issues well the linguistic you know issue is a major one and and thank you for mentioning that out uh, it had to the project in order for me to be representative i felt require you know uh, a good honest approach to classical sources and their adaptation into the new world so there are translations and close readings of passages in ancient Greek and Latin. There is also a movement across uh, Spanish and Portuguese, especially uh, in, in the fourth chapter where I focus essentially on, on mostly on Brazil. And, and much of the bibliography that I had to use isn't, was not available in English or in Spanish. So I also had to toy with bibliography in, in French and in Italian and, and German. Um, so it's a very uh, multilingual book, and that's one of the most exciting, one of the most appealing parts for me because I really have a tremendous investment in this. But it did actually test my <laughs> my linguistic abilities and my linguistic shortcomings, and I was very fortunate to be able to contact friends from different languages and different expertise, linguistic expertises that assisted me. There were a couple of moments where I actually found myself in quite serious trouble because, for example, one of the texts that I include is written in a strange combination of Latin and Spanish. It's an artificial language that was concocted in the 17th century. And the idea is that you can actually read the text uh, either as a Spanish text or as a Latin text. Uh, and in order for this to be accomplished, the author systematically uh, relied on cognate structures or cognate words, right? Um, for example, uh, the first person in Latin, the first person present singular active voice is identical in its inflection in Latin and Spanish, right? So the word amare, right, to love in Latin or amar in Spanish Right, will be conjugated in very different ways, but the first person is amo. So you can actually create these coincidental structures and sentences that allegedly, because ultimately it doesn't actually quite work all the time, but allegedly can be read as either Spanish or uh, Latin. And, uh, and it's not simply, a, I mean, this is obviously a, a sign of the Baroque, and I will speak about this later when we will, if we discuss that, that particular chapter, right? But it also betrays a particular ideological desire to conflate two different languages uh, that have particular values uh, in that moment, right? In that uh, imperial moment in which the text was composed. So... Yes, I play with languages all along, uh, and uh, and that took a lot of time. I also wanted to make sure that uh, people could see how my linguistic approach had been enacted 
and what had been my decisions, which is why I decided that everything that was not in English would have a translation. So I provide translations for everything, which is not usual a, a usual route in this type of editorial endeavors. Sometimes you know translations are immediately embedded, but I didn't want to actually show the original text as I had read them and translated them. Uh, but that was just one of the challenges, you know. Uh, another important challenge was the scope. And I had to deal with a tremendous amount of resistance from, you know, different readers about this because uh, it actually goes against the grain or it's at odds, better to say, with that, with that thing that we are taught, right, that you have to... Identify your topic, you have to circumscribe it, you have to focalize it, right? And then you have to become a little bit of an expert on a particular matter that then you uh, showcase and analyze in an original way, right? But um, I think that, I mean, you understand this perfectly well as well. You know, there is something about that that, uh, wisdom, right, about that principle that is somehow in a little bit of tension with what comparative literature does. Uh, and comparatists often find themselves in a need to justify their projects because other readers think, you know, why is that you're putting these two things together, right? What is the point? And who do you think you are? And I remember when I first started developing this project, one of the readers who was uh, an excellent person and very well intended, he said this with the best of intentions. He said... I really like the project. I really think that this is ambitious and interesting. The only thing that I'm concerned is that by the time you are actually done with this thing, most of the people who are sitting at this table right now will be dead. And and everybody laughed. (laughs) But, I mean, he was actually pointing out, uh, he was putting his finger on something that is actually quite quite true, right? The, The book covers over 500 years of history, uh, and it moves all over the place through different nations and different languages. And I had a reader who less benevolently found this scope as an attempt to just display some sort of encyclopedic acumen. Um, and they wrote in a review, right? It seems that this person simply wants to show off how much they know. Um, and that was a massive challenge for me because that has never been my intention. On the one hand, I really want uh, to deal with different things and to integrate them. And I think that that's the reason why I ended up becoming a competitist. But at the same time, I do acknowledge, I do recognize, and I'm profoundly conscious about the dangers and the risks of doing something like this. Uh, And I foreground those challenges in the introduction, right? None of the cases that I explore tries to be exhaustive. I am not trying to write a grand history of the classics in Latin America or in South America. This is not a sort of Hegelian approach that, you know, from, from the ether oversees the way in which histories and cultures have come into place. I tried to stumble upon five cases in which I thought this relation was productive. And then I tried to produce a story, a narrative that is not really a history that rather a genealogy in the humblest sense, you know, even humbler than what Foucault ever meant, 
uh, it's just one way of telling a story that can be told in different ways. And, and I wanted to invite people to think about the sort of longitudinal presence of the classics in South America by giving them a sign and a, a tale, right? That would put together these different episodes without any, any desire to be comprehensive or exhaustive. And, and I actually feel that my intention ultimately became I want to give something that can propitiate a conversation because when I started the book, this was a very, very uh, rarely trodden field. And during the last 10 years, it's actually has, it has developed and, and I was very happy to find that new scholars were interested in this, right? But that's also part of the history of the book and that was the way in which I navigated some of these challenges. I don't know if I solved them or I circumvented them. A little bit of both, I would say. Uh, but that is that is for sure something that uh, has put pressure on me, and and I'm you know I I I'm happy to let the reader decide whether I did an efficient job in facing this. Uh, the only thing that I can say is for sure that I was conscious and I did my best to try to uh, do justice to you know my goals, but at the same time to acknowledge that, you know, you cannot write a history that is exhaustive when you are covering so much time, space, and identities. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's also some sort of, um, you know, there, there are many, let's say, implications in um, an endeavor, you know, if, if now, you know, 2021, someone would just say, I will write the new encyclopedia of, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z, I think there's, um, although, I mean, you know, I, I grew up admiring these uh, endeavors. I also think that the time, the space, you know, the market, the jobs, the, you know, all of that, and plus yeah. the, the knowledge endeavor itself and writing uh, an exhaustive account uh, over a subject would, um, you know, sound um, debatable right now, right? Um, so yeah, um, yeah, completely. I mean, yes, this by no means. And actually, one of the subjects of uh, of one of my chapters, although it's not the the main subject, is one of these individuals who you know was a polymath, a sort of Leibniz of of the new world that was uh, a lawyer, but also a theologian, but also a poet, and also an architect, and also an expert in the construction of walls, and also a philologist, and also a mathematician, and also everything, you know? So um, I, I, I have encountered those things as very much the subject of my analysis. So I, I also wanted to be a little bit self-aware of all that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just as uh, to continue the anecdote, and I, I will go into chapter one immediately. But uh, the uh, the high school I went to, uh, the founder was this also this this person as you described, right? So both an architect and a poet, and you know, a writer, and uh, you know, for journals, and you know, all of this um, engineers, and and then uh, he started writing a dictionary that he never. Um, finished and um you know it was all the the words that can be translated into another language and he was thinking about other you know um romance languages um uh but also all the introductable the, the things that cannot be translated 
So um, he was thinking that he will write this dictionary of everything that can be translated and everything that cannot be. <laughs> we'll decide, you know, which one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it would be great to write about a book about those individuals. You know, I can, yeah. And there is something really fascinating about that illus- illusory, right? Uh, ambition. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know it's it's fun to to think about it and actually see the works you know in the original and see like huh okay you 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 arrived at letter B okay <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. so um, you know uh, with that being said uh, and going back to 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 the book that you know your chapter one entitled Avatars investigates in detail the which the ways in which the um, you know quote imaginary categories of the new and the old that used to define the relationship between Europe and the Americas also served as a fertile ground for thinking about the tension between both worlds um, in, within uh, you know quotes uh, through classical narratives and mm-hmm. ending the master quote here and um, besides the writing right as uh, as a metaphor of the americas into cultural and epistemological reality the authors you engage uh, with um, also had to negotiate their own identity in relation to the classics themselves and position themselves as intellectual in that tradition or outside of it and this is where the chapter's title avatars i think stems from as well and please uh you know do <laughs> do tell me otherwise um but with that being said i was wondering to and you know i'm curious about the, the ways in which um the 16th and the 17th centuries uh, authors thread this line and with what rhetorical and cultural tools this happens the yeah the title avatars right that is not borrowed from the movie but <laughs> from the you know hindu epic tradition right of the embodiments of incarnations of uh, divinities, right? Uh, it's something that uh, came to me as a, as an attempt to try to imagine how how you embody it or how you represent something that is speaking about two things at the same time that seem to be incompatible. Um, and this is a key moment in the in the writing of the new world. If not in the history, but in the historiography, in the, in the writing of the New World, because the first, uh, the the last decades of the 16th century were quite turbulent across the Americas, right? Because the invasion, the occupation, was not initially an imperial, uh, not simply an imperial project, but it was also, to a large extent, a private enterprise. Right of conquistadors who got together and decided, well, we're going to try to, you know, make it work. And and there were important tensions to the point that they have been coded as civil wars between conquistadors and representatives of the crown. And and on top of that, it's not that the indigenous communities just simply stayed quiet, right? Even after the execution of Atahualpa, the last of the great Inca lords, right? There were decades of indigenous resistance uh, in a sort of uh, underground Inca state, right? Um, So it took a great deal of effort to finally institute the bureaucratic and social mechanisms to 
start the colonial project full-fledgedly. And so we have to go to the to the end of the 16th century and the start of the 17th century to see that moment in which things are finally settling. And there is the opportunity for a sort of retrospective uh, intellectual and epistemological engagement with something that is already considered part of the jurisdiction of uh, the European powers, right, in the New World, especially Portugal and Spain. So this is the this is a field, this is a moment in which these avatars arrive. And, and I call them avatars because they realize, it's my opinion, that they had a unique opportunity. And this you know, self-consciousness is something actually very typical of New World moments in general. They realize that they were situated in a place that gave them the opportunity to enact or produce the role that Europeans had been granting to ancient authorities for centuries, right? So you had the opportunity to be the new Aristotle. You had the opportunity to be the new Pliny. You had the opportunity to be a new Ovid. You had the opportunity to be a new Julius Caesar. And it was not uh, an implicit or disguised type of attempt. It became very explicit, right? When these people arrived in the new world, they thought of themselves, right, as restaging or performing once again in this blank slate of the new world, right? the intellectual authority that had been traditionally granted to the famous names of classical antiquity. And this is what the chapter uh, is about. Actually, this chapter started in an article that I published uh, a while ago uh, that focused on an Indian historian that left the New World and ended up living in Spain for the rest of his life. And he was the son of a conquistador and an Incan princess. And his name is um, Garcilaso de la Vega. And Garcilaso adopted the moniker of Inca, el Inca. And he signed his books, he translated books, and then he wrote these chronicles and histories in Spain, uh, you know, brandishing and showcasing his, his, his title of Inca and foregrounding his knowledge of, of Quechua as a native speaker, right, uh, as a new way to uh, create authority about the new world. And he writes by saying, you know, I know that Spaniards have already written about these things, but I figured I could actually elaborate on some of his remarks and illuminate some of them, given that I come from there and I know the language. So, um and Garcilaso is very explicit about his desire to become a new Julius Caesar, of being somebody who can, uh, you know, speak to the crown through the feats of the sword, because of Julius Caesar's, you know, famous role as a general in the Roman Empire, uh, in what is going to become the Roman Empire, but also uh, Garcilaso himself having served as a soldier for the Spanish crown. And on the other hand, Julius Caesar, the author of the Gallic Wars, right, a, a monumental account, right, a, of the encounter between Roman forces uh, in the Gaul, in the conquest of the Gaul, and he himself seen 
his role as a chronicler of the rise and fall of the Incan Empire and the arrival of the Europeans. So there are these moments of identification and equation. And the authors that I see in the chapter, in the first chapter of the book, somehow follow suit. They they see themselves as, I, I examined uh, a couple of cases, right? One is Father um, uh, Jose de Acosta, right? Who really tries to perform as a new Pliny or a Pliny of the new world. And I also examined the case of a civilian poet called Diego Mejia de Fernan Hill, who was obsessed with Ovid and just like him wanted to explain what it feels to be in a sort of exile, given that Ovid famously was exiled to the Pontus, right, to the easternmost border, not the easternmost, but far off, right, uh, the the center of power in Rome, uh, to, the, to the Black Sea, right? Uh, and, and many of his most famous poems came from that lamentation of exile, so this civilian poet also wanted to do that type of thing. And, um, and you know, you find this type of echoes, this type of gestures of identification all over the place in this, in this particular moment. And I see it as, as this realization that this is the ripe time to write about all what has been happening and we are going to consolidate our presence in this historical moment as a founding figures, right? That produce the symbols and the text through which this newness can be decoded. And so that is actually the source of the idea of avatar, right? I, I claim that there are avatars of Pliny, avatars of Ovid, avatars of Julius Caesar, um, and I try to give the textual evidence through which these weird, you know, awkward transactions actually happened. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And uh, actually, as you were talking, I remember that, you know, Julius Caesar, Caesar when he was, um, um, you know, um, in his on his expeditions to, you know, conquer the goals and, you know, um, do 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 all of these things he was sending right letters back to 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 rome and he was rhetorically setting the stage for himself coming back and you know the importance of, of the writing and the importance of all these you know metaphors and you know just um um yeah just the rhetorical instruments uh, contained in those um letters and in the manuscript um, and, you know, there is some sort of parallel, I think, that can be um, drawn here with the ways in which the authors you you analyze and probably others as well have based their own practices and setting the stage, right, for, for interpretation, for accommodation of, of different uh, cultural phenomena, right, in, in, um, in what they considered their world at that time, right? Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, a, a good example of that is uh, uh, Jose de Acosta. He started writing a description of the new world, not as an attempt to be the new Pliny, but just a sort of uh, bait for a, a, a treatment that he wanted to write about the conversions, the conversion of, 
of indigenous peoples, right? And he wrote that in Latin, but then he realized that people were really into the description. And as you say, he saw the opportunity, he sets the stage. So he translates his own writing from Latin into Spanish. And that is when he adopts the title uh, Historia Natural y Moral de las Indias, which is gesturing to the Naturalist Historia or Natural History, the famous encyclopedia by Pliny the Elder. So, yes, I mean, they, they accommodate what they are doing, right? They reshuffle their own positions, their own labor, their own uh, their own placing as, as authors so that they can respond to that desire of self-classicalization. And that's actually a term that I use in that article, right? There's a self-classicalizing appetite, uh, yeah. consciously deployed. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes. I mean, it's there, you know, it's not very obvious, but it's there. Very obvious, yeah. I mean, they are not shy about it. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I think with that, we could, we could move to chapter two, which, uh, you know, it's, it's entitled Choreographers. And um, here we advance temporarily towards the late 17th and 18th centuries. And we get to read more about the city of Lima, as well as about the classics influence over the arrangement of Criollo communities there. And while in the first chapter we learned about, you know, the allusions to the Roman scholar Pliny the Elder and translations of, of Ovid's, uh, Heroids, um, and, you know, the, the, the other, you know, in, uh, connections with Ju- uh, Julius Caesar. But in chapter two, we focus more on Virgil's Aeneid and its instrumentalization in endowing the city of Lima with a sense of historical legitimacy, if I could use that word. And... Um, the the authors and the works that you analyze here, um, I think, as we, we've seen in chapter one, have designed their own prestige and their own, um, you know, er, area of influence, but also a type of cultural and literal continuity um, between the old and the new um, and, you know, many uh, nuances as these worlds have. So, um, you know, my question is, how and um you know whether you could tell us more about your specific examples and also you know about the meaning of of the title of the chapter sure this chapter actually was the last one that i wrote and i wrote it because i felt that the chapter needed that there was the need to a sort of reply or a counterpoint to the first chapter and and you see i mean the uh, as as i was saying in with respect to the first chapter the new the newness of the new world was a great opportunity for these writers right because if everything is new then everything is pending is to be done right and that is a great opportunity to be the greatest the foundational thing the first the first one who did it right the one who set up the parameters for everybody else coming after uh, and that's very convenient and very great if you don't happen to be from the new world right uh, and but the problem is that this newness also became ansiogenic, uh, and especially for a city like Lima, which just accidentally happens to be my own city. And 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 the issue was that uh, Limanians right quickly became a very wealthy uh, and at least that's the way they imagine very prosperous community. 50 years after the foundation of Lima, which happened in 1535, they are actually bragging about how they are the greatest city 
in the new world that is full of edifices and riches and sophistications and squares and plazas. And they are bragging and they are trying to position themselves as this great metropolis of the new world, right? And very consciously, they compare themselves to ancient cities, right, to Athens, to Rome, but they also compare themselves to early modern great urban spaces, right? They compare themselves to, uh, you know, to Toledo or uh, to Venice, right, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there are these parallels that betray what I think is a sense of anxiety, right? How does a city that have just a handful of years, right, of existence can actually compare, right, to these monumental urban spaces that have engendered, that, that have sort of sentiments of culture, right? Um, and for a colonial space like Lima, this was actually quite a troublesome thing to deal with because Lima was also becoming very wealthy on account of the circulation of silver coming from what is today um, Bolivia, right? The, the Potosí area, the famous Cerro Rico, which was this massive silver vein that produced enormous amount of, of silver, right? That imported from the Americas into the New World. And that first created an enormous influx of capital, but then generated an enormous inflation and just... <laughs> In then years, right, the Spanish crown that had to declare bankruptcy multiple times. The Lima was this uh, place in which newness had to be dealt with, right? Because Lima had to decide how to become great, as great as the, as the metropolises of the old world, in spite of its brevity, in spite of its short history. And that's what I allude to by the title choreographers. The, the title refers to this uh, genre, this uh, Renaissance genre that, that consisted of the meticulous description and glorification of a city. So if you had a particular city that was, you know, say Paris, Antwerp, or, you know, uh, Milano, right? And, and you had somebody who was particularly fond of the city. It was not unusual, right, to find these choreographies, these meticulous, detailed descriptions of streets, edifices, buildings, bridges, statues, columns, pillars, squares, etc., right? In Lima, found choreographers very quickly. Very, very soon after its foundation, you have people praising, you know, singing the praises of this, to be completely honest, still very tiny urban space, right? That had an inordinately large idea of itself. And um, and the examples that I look at, right, uh, are evidence of this of this perennial preoccupation, right? The first history of Lima, formal history of Lima, uh, I believe it's written about 100 years after its foundation by Father Bernabe Cobo. And he explicitly says, Lima has achieved everything. The only thing that is missing is age, right? <laughs> and that the only thing that it doesn't have 
that that other great cities in the old world have, right? So what I try to do in that in that chapter is to read the mechanisms of compensation through which Lima can overcome its its unbearable newness, uh, and I look at two um, examples that are actually uh, coeval, right? Both of them happened in the 1670s. By the t- by that time, Lima is over 150 years, right? And it's probably the wealthiest city in the new world. Uh, and it wants to become Rome, of course. <laughs> and that's why Aeneas and the Aeneid come so handy. Because in these processes of glorification, right, there is something, uh, a lesson to be extracted from uh, Pater Aeneas, right, Father Aeneas. Uh, and one of those things is that even the greatest symbol or the greatest example of a great city, right, Rome, could be tracked back to a moment of incipiency, of, of you know, of an original moment. And that moment is located in the Aeneid. And actually, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very logical decision because when Virgil composed the Aeneid, right, it is a composition that also responds to the collapse of the Roman Senate and the rise of the Roman Empire. And it's a propagandistic text, right, that is trying to uh, make the pitch that uh, Emperor Augustus has brought back the, the age of Saturn, right, which is the Roman equivalent of, of uh, paradise, right, of paradise lost. And... In, in part of the project of the Aeneid is to remind the humble origins of these Trojan refugees that end up founding this amazing power, right? And in that sense, the Aeneid provides spectacularly fitting elements to talk about a city, right, that decides to be the center of the world. And I'm not kidding about the very effervescent imagination of the Romanians of the 17th century. They actually were convinced that uh, sooner or later, the next pope was going to be from Lima. And in a way, there is also the implicit proposition that is going to evolve uh, uh, in the following decades after the cases I examined, that uh, maybe the European powers and Europe itself, it's not the best place for the empire to flourish and that the new world is giving them the, an opportunity for renovation. Uh, and, you know, to just to make it worse, there are classical narratives that imagine empires moving from east to west and from west to east, right, in this to and fro movement. So there were icons, there were elements of the tropology of the classics that could be used for to make the argument, right, that, yes, this new world city is actually the place where the empire can flourish. Um, and that's that's what I try to do. I, I look at, you know, the first maps of the walls of Lima and, and how the maps are gesturing to, toward the first book of the Aeneid, right, when, when Aeneas arrives in Carthage and sees the walls of Carthage rising. Uh, and the map explicitly cites the Aeneid, right, while it's representing Lima. 
And I also look at the case of this Spanish Latin poet, right, Who's, uh, who tried to destroy his own manuscript in a way that seemed to be performing Virgil's historical attempt to destroy the Aeneid, right, as recorded by classical historians as well. Um, and that's how, you know, uh, the tension is, is dramatized. So I think that if in the first chapter you had people who wanted to take advantage of the new world trope in order to become the first ones, right, in the second chapter, you see people who are overwhelmed by this newness and they are trying to transform it into something that still gives them a source of authority. In either case, these are highly colonial uh, dynamics, right? They can only be understood within that pressure of being a periphery that tries to be a center. Sure, 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 sure. The context is is absolutely important um but i am fascinated by the effervescence and the enthusiasm and all the you know imagination and the energy that is put into you know making space for all of these things that you you uh, analyze and to adapting and to designing um you know, prestige and a tradition and, you know, even giving advice to, to the continent a little bit, um, you know, to Europe. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if you wanted to add anything here, but, you know, I was just fascinated with, with the whole thing. Yes, yes. I mean, there is this desire to participate in a dialogue. I mean, as, as, as colonial... Uh, urban spaces in Lima, very particularly, right, uh, continue growing and, and aging, right? They decide to to partake of of the d- debates of the intellectual communities of Europe. And actually, uh, there is a Limanian Pedro Peralta from the late 16th, I'm sorry, from the late 17th, early 18th century, who was a member of the French Academy of Science and who... Uh, himself, you know, he taught himself eight different languages, including Quechua, French, Italian, English, and he wrote poetry in all of them. Uh, he never left Lima, and that type of, and he became the sort of the the rector or the chancellor position, right, of the Universidad de San Marcos, the San Marcos University, which is one of the oldest. They claim to be the oldest university in the New World. Um, so they definitely thought of themselves, uh, I mean, they had the, the, the feeling that Europeans looked down on them, which actually wasn't true. <laughs> wasn't, I'm, I'm sorry, it wasn't false. It is true, right? That, and at the same time, they wanted to outsmart them, to demonstrate, to prove that actually there was something to be learned from this area that, that you know, was still peripheral for European imagination, right? Or it was just a source of, material wealth or, or natural resources, right? So it has to do with uh, the desire to, to create um, academic capital, right? And send it back to the new world, to the old world, so to speak. <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. And I think that tradition in, does not end, right, in the 18th century and can be, um, you know, we can, we can talk about it further, uh, you know, going into the 19th century. Um, 
and um you know we and of course that creates a lot of um you know maybe a lot of tensions and you know we uh, the 19th century is uh, is becoming tumultuous and you know we we can see this um even clearer in chapter 3 um entitled persone uh, where the figure of simon bolivar is in full focus and uh, his achievements were celebrated by using the classical epic and lyric modes uh, while his less than enthusiastic counterparts use the diatribe genre to attack him and this is this is familiar to the people who are um, you know have, have studied the classics right the the diatribe is is quite um, quite familiar and um, I was wondering how did this melange played out in the literary circles of the time and could one say that the classics were instrumental in offering a rhetorical platform for the ontological formation of Bolivar's image and the region's geopolitical makeup or not that much? Um, what would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, this is the chapter when I move right at the end of the colonial period, right at the start of the formation of the new republics. And you're absolutely right that this did not end in the 17th or 18th century. In fact, this is an inter-American phenomenon and if I had the energy, uh, I would actually try to do, you know, the, to, to incorporate the history of the United States, for example, into these anxieties as well, because, uh, you know, they are also constitutive of the formation of the U.S. There's a lot of actions that, you know, you find statues of people like Benjamin Franklin dressed like a Roman senator. And I bring this up because I start that chapter about Bolivar, with being dressed as a senator as well, right? The first statue, the first public statue of Bolivar uh, showcases him uh, dressed with his, you know, military attire, but he has a, a Roman toga, right? And, and, he, and he is disposed as a sort of senatorial, ancient senatorial figure. And there's something to be said about this because it seems that Bolivar happens to be the figure that has engendered the largest amount of statues across the planet. But I don't think uh, there there has been people arguing that you you cannot that you can find statues of Bolivar in every single part of the world. Uh, and you you know during the Arab Spring actually what the statue of Bolivar in, in Egypt in, in Cairo actually became the site for a very eloquent protests, right where uh, Bolivar was, the statue was complemented with patches and things and references to what was going on. Um, and yes, you find it all over the place. And, you know, Bolivar, Bolivar himself is the, the motif and the subject of entire libraries. And you can easily spend your academic career just going through everything that has been written about him and you won't end, Right. Uh, and and that is because he became like the the vortex, right, in, in which so many different things conflated. And Bolivar was such a contradictory figure uh, that uh, it it's not surprising that he also became the subject of many classical. Uh, figurations, right? And as you said, right, some people use these figurations to exalt him, to praise him, and others to use him and even to try to kill him. And so in the literary circles of the time, you find that the classics have once again consolidated themselves as the language 
of the time. They are, uh, I mean, you have to know the classics if you are educated in the 19th century because of the neoclassical impetus that comes from Europe, you know, after the French Revolution, after the rise of uh, Napoleon, for example. Uh, in Napoleon himself, Napoleon had a, a tremendous uh, fondness for the classics and you know, he was represented as a magnificent Mars, for example, in a massive statue, right, by uh, Antonio Canova, who was arguably the most important sculptor, right, of the neoclassical period. So um, people read the classics, but this time, they, instead of reading them in, uh, in Latin, they probably read them in French. <laughs> uh, and uh, Bolivar, who was also trained in French, and he... I mean, he was an aristocrat, right? Who was educated in very selective circles, and he spent a great deal of time walking around Europe in what used to be known as the Grand Tour, right? This uh, sort of trek across different classical sites in Europe. And he actually moved from Madrid to uh, Paris and from Paris to Rome. And he... Uh, pronounce an oath to, you know, liberate the new world in Rome, actually. That's that's where it started, on top of one of the hills where, according to ancient historians, the plebeians revolted against the patricians, right, in Rome, in ancient Rome. So there are these weird moments, right, where Bolivar himself is performing, and I call the, the chapter personae, which is after dramatis personae, right, uh, or the characters in a play, because um, Bolivar and and his uh, allies and his detractors alike, they all adopted you know classical roles for the particular purpose of uh, serving a political agenda, right? Either exalting the liberator or you know condemning him as a as a tyrant, um, and. Uh, you find these oscillations, right? You call a melange, right? Uh, consistently articulating the language of intellectual communities. But the most fascinating thing is that these were not simply constrained to literary circles. Uh, they started just spilling out into, you know, graffiti, into uh, newspaper columns, into, you know, popular rhymes that somebody would you know, recite on a corner, right, to express a political attitude. So there was something about the classics that became popular, pop, uh, that also participated actively uh, in this uh, constant debate about Bolivar. Uh, and, And that's what the chapter examines, right, the way in which Bolivar becomes the subject, the motif, Right, the reference, the target, uh, but also the model, the paradigm, the parangon, right? And, and the amount of classical images and metaphors and references used to characterize this. And one of the chapters looks at, um, you know, a poem that is written to exalt two decisive victories, victories, right, in, in Peru in the year 1824, uh, and the second part of the chapter looks at an actual attempt to assassinate Bolivar 
that was promoted and was coded, I mean, explicitly uh, after the assassination of Julius Caesar, right? It's just, it's one of the craziest things that I have seen ever, you know? I mean, these people actually describe Bolivar as Julius Caesar. They imagine themselves as, as Brutus or Cassius, and they try to justify the attempted assassination of Bolivar, you know, invoking what moved Brutus and Cassius to kill Julius Caesar. And they were very close to killing him. Uh, so, I mean, this is a moment in which this impersonation of the classics goes wild. And, and you know, it's very, very risky to make hypotheses about what could have happened if, but Bolivar, Bolivar is such an extraordinary figure that uh, you can only just, you can only imagine what would have happened if they had killed him, right? What would have been the 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 impact, the, the sort of uh, shockwaves across the entire South American region if this attempt had been uh, successful. And once again, you know, it is modeled after a classical tale. Um, so uh, it's quite fascinating a case, and, and that's what I try to do uh, in looking at it. Sure, sure, sure. And, you know, just to... Um, spice up the story a little bit. I will tell you that we do have a statue of Bolivar in Romania. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you cannot. Uh, and you know, and the, the 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 weird thing is that we don't exactly know how he looked <laughs> because uh, we have all sort of interpretations. And on top of that, there was a, an ongoing rumor that. Bolivar had black blood in his ancestry, that one of his ancestors was a black person. Uh, and some of the representations, because of the very racialist and very racist dimensions of some of these courses were, uh, that tried to represent Bolivar with uh, the features of a black man, right? So you see oscillations that whiten Bolivar or that darken him. Uh, and a little bit of everything in between. So even himself and his own figuration, right, is something that moves across multiple registers. So who knows? Who knows? Uh, that's uh, that's that's also you know part of the the fascinating character of this of this figure. Yes, 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 and uh, yeah, it's. Um... It, it it's basically like a series, you know. It's just it moves from one episode to another and <laughs> across continents. Um, yeah, um, and you know, I mean, but here, you know, just to make the connection with the next um, next chapter, chapter four, there is a certain element of 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 a myth that that surrounds uh, both the texts, like the classical texts, but also the 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 people right who are either at the center or who are building the the you know building uh, elements of culture or elements of, of prestige there and in chapter four entitled mythographers um, um, you analyze um, while you trace the evolutions and transformations of Orpheus and the Minotaur's myth in Brazil and uh, and Argentine right you, you you continue the analysis and um, there's a close engagement with uh, Borges uh, bio uh, mythography and uh, you also develop um, what what, uh, what it's called uh, mythological contamination theory 
And um, then we move to Brazil and its various artistic and literary scenes where Orpheus's myth mutates as art negotiates different identities. And um, here I was curious about, the, of course, the mythological contamination theory, but also its implications for the literary world in South America. I uh, I really like this chapter because uh, it actually changes a little bit the diction and the register. It adopts a little bit more of a sort of narrative and journalistic type of uh, orientation at a certain point that that actually I I, I enjoyed very much while writing and. The idea of mythological contamination was an attempt to, you know, give that narrative dimension of the chapter a, a degree of theoretical density. And I wanted to try to come up with something that would um, illuminate a little bit, you know, the messiness of Orpheus in Brazil. At this point, you know, I have moved from, you know, the 16th century and 17th century first chapter to the 17th, 18th century of the second chapter, the 19th century Bolivarian chapter, uh, third chapter, and then now I'm in the 20th century, right? Uh, and and I'm thinking about the fact that myths are con- constitutive of all the phenomena that I have seen in the previous ones, right? But then there is a difference between just taking a myth and making a reference, right, to just chastise Bolivar, or to talk about, you know, your own predicaments in the Andes because you are like Ovid. Uh, and Ovid used, for example, you know, uh, Homeric myths, right? The Odyssey and whatnot in order to remind himself. And another completely different thing is to just rewrite a whole myth, right? That comes from the classics and adapt it into a different context, right? Uh, because that, implies a degree of intervention that is not simply figurative, but is also narratological. You have to know where the myth, the ancient myth starts, right, and ends. You need a sort of proto-story line in order for you to toy with it properly. And, you know, Orpheus is this mythological singer that loses his wife, and he's so good that he manages to use his musical talent to penetrate the depths of the underworld and convince the lords of hell to let them, uh, to let him go back to the outer world with his wife. They say that's fine as long as you walk all the way back to the outer world without looking back to see if your wife is following. Something that, as we all know, he doesn't manage to do, right? Right on the border, on the edge of light, as Virgil would have it, he decides to turn back and sees the ghost of his wife for the last time, right? He realizes that she was there all along, but he also realizes that he has lost her forever. And uh, Orpheus has been reproduced incessantly, you know, as you know, uh, throughout medieval Renaissance and early modern uh, and neoclassical versions. It's all over the place. Uh, There's a figura Christi based on Orpheus, right? that imagines Orpheus being Christ going to the underworld and rescuing the souls, right? And then sacrificing himself for the sake of that soul. Uh, so that, this is a quite a flexible and quite visited myth. But what happened in, in Brazil is just uh, magnificent, right? Uh, 
because this group of artists, right, poets and singers decided to adapt Orpheus to the Brazilian favelas, the slums of Rio de Janeiro, right, the city. And all of a sudden, this thing became enormously popular. It was a global success, right? It attracted these investors that made the, which is maybe the most successful Brazilian movie ever, right? Black Orpheus from 1595 that won the Oscar, that won Cannes, right? And that propelled Brazil and these particular creators into stratospheric levels, right? They All of a sudden they became uh, stars, right? World stars. Uh, and when that happens, then you know, there is a a sort of process of mythification as well, as it happens with any great legendary artist, right? Whether you like him or not, right? You have the myth about, you know, how awesome Michael Jackson was or how amazing Frank Sinatra was, even if they were terrible people or not, right? The little details, the events of their lives become all clouded or surrounded by a certain aura of extraordinariness, right? Of uniqueness and uh, and at the same time the motifs that propel them to that stature right also become the staff of myth in a very literal sense I would argue so what I call mythological contamination uh, or what I try to call mythological contamination is this weird process in which the narrating of a myth of a classical myth engenders another myth or rather than engendering it gets to be emerges with another myth and becomes imbricated. Um, to put it in simpler terms, right now Orpheus is a, is a Brazilian myth on its own right, right? You cannot remove Orpheus from Brazil. After decades, right, starting in the 50s, after decades of rewritings and debates and explosive conversations and very contested arguments, about how well Orpheus represents Brazil, you cannot detach, right? What is actually, a, you know, a Greek myth about a Thracian singer from the cultural scenic history of Brazil, right? Uh, and some of its most important uh, global icons, the icons that have circulated more widely, the Orpheus, Black Orpheus, for example, the movie from 1959 uh, was estimated as the sort of opening window uh, about uh, into Brazil for most people in the world, right? Uh, and it condenses, you know, the stereotypes that we have in the back of our head when we think of Brazil, you know, namely beautiful beaches and beautiful people, right? but also samba and carnival, and also football, right? Football, soccer, right? Uh, and these are these images, right, are already crystallized in a story about Orpheus. I call this mythological contamination, right? The, the, the telling of a myth all of a sudden transforms the telling process itself a myth in, on its own. And, and the mythographers, those who write the myth, right, also become mythological figures. Um, and I start with, with Borges in Brazil and the way he uses the Minotaur as a sort of preface to test the waters. 
But if I ever have the opportunity, I actually have a few other examples waiting, you know, waiting to, to be explored. One of them is Atlantis. Atlantis became a source of obsession for writers in the New World who thought this is a great way to explain the origin of people in the New World. They are the survivors of Atlantis. And this thing has actually been perpetuated well into the 20th century. I mean, with utmost seriousness. And I hope to actually write soon about that. Another example is Iphigenia, the daughter of Agamemnon, right? The protagonist of a couple of tragedies by Sophocles, who has also been the subject of a series of, of plays, right? Where Iphigenia is located in uh, Latin American contexts. Uh, and another example is Antigone. Antigone has also been, you know, adapted to the new world. And uh, I think that all these cases also have that potential of mythological contamination. Once they, uh, to put it in a way, once they uh, click with something related to cultural identity, with debates about cultural identity, they can actually engender more myth. And that's what a chapter tries to do. I think it does it beautifully. And it's so, so rich in, in examples. And um, yeah, I I wish, you know, as many people as possible would, would, would read it and just, uh, you know, engage in conversations because it's so... Um, so conversation generating, right? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those are beautiful. Yeah, I mean, and and, and the, it it actually allowed me to talk about music, about theater, about film. So it actually gave me gave the book a little bit of a more cultural studies type of dimension, right? It expanded. It moved to new registers and new media, which was actually also quite quite fantastic for me. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. And, you know, talking about film and art in general in relation to, to the myths and in relation to the classics, it's, um, I thought it was a very, um, you know, pivotal mo- a point in, in the book to, to make this transition and articulate better the 20, 20th century positioning of the classics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we all learn, um, a lot and actually i thought it was a really nice touch to in uh, to t- title chapter five uh pedagogues uh coda pedagogues um you know that explicitly names and addresses the extent and importance of historical undercurrents defined by you know, what you mentioned before um anxiety appropriations transformations and self-definitions that are inherited in the cultural and literary negotiations between the classics and south america and here I would venture to say not just South America, but maybe, you know, maybe further. Yes. That. And uh, your your case study, namely the America Latina y lo Clásico conference in Italy offers the context, right, for the research of present day encounters and the ripple, ripples in academic and non-academic circles as well. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's quite apparent, but I still wanted to ask the question, um, namely, who are the pedagogues and what are some of the future paths to, to explore from here? was very hard to write because, um, you know, there is the potential that this chapter will be read a little bit ungenerously. I feel 
I don't, uh, I mean, the, the chapter is very critical about a particular event and, and the way in which it symptomatizes along history, right? Uh, but it was tough for me because I wanted to also acknowledge and appreciate the excellent work that had been done by classicists from Latin America who are perennially excluded from conversations in classical circles, in classical circles, right? I mean, when it comes to classical studies, the contributions of Latin American scholars are fundamentally ignored, right? At the same time, though, I felt that there were some very unique and revealing aspects in this particular event that I examined here that merited attention. And I wanted to create a little bit of a balance between foregrounding those dimensions and at the same time acknowledging the complexities. And and the case is also uh, difficult to tackle because uh, it's very recent, right? The event, the conference took place in the year 2001 and the, uh, the compilation, which is basically the, what is the word that I'm looking for? The, um, the collection of documents that came out of the event, the proceedings, right? The proceedings, uh, the you know, the, the volume, the two volumes are the proceedings of this conference. And, and most for the most part, right, these two volumes are basically, you know, scholarly analysis, very erudite, very sophisticated, of a series of transactions between Latin America and the classics. And it was kind of groundbreaking at, uh, at the time because, you know, this is the year 2001, but this subject had been law, largely ignored, right? And... Then again, the protocols and the performance through which the particular event that housed the kernel for the proceedings took place, I believe merited uh, critical attention. And and the pedagogues, right, uh, I imagine, were the individuals leading this project. And that's where the world, you know, comes from, right? It comes from Paideon, right, the child, right, and again to lead, right, that's what a pedagogue is, is somebody who leads the kids, right, uh, which is a way to talk about uh, paideia, right, in ancient Greeks, in ancient Greeks, right, which is a term that means culture and, and education at the same time. Um, and these are people that explicitly, as you suggested, are invested in pedagogical educational roles because they are all professors and they are concerned about curriculum. But at the same time, they are prospective. They are trying to lead uh, into a new horizon, right? And there is something etymologically pedagogical in that type of endeavor. The, the, the conference was... Um, a, a peculiar event, as I described, it, in, it, it I mean, it happened to be a conference, a beautifully organized conference in Erisi, Italy. But there were some performative elements that call my attention. For example, there were readings of ancient poetry in Latin and uh, in Greek in front of the ruins of temples. And, and the content of the poems were, was mostly religious. So there were these weird moments in which you had scholars from Latin America praying to the ancient divinities uh, in front of the ruins of their temples, right? 
uh, and you know there was something interesting and you know maybe it was part of just the the you know entertainment activities for you know people who come together to a very beautiful area of the world right but then there was this manifesto written in latin right uh, for grounding the importance of the classics in the new world and uh, making a very strong call for authorities to study ancient Greek and Latin in Latin America. And then there were letters sent to the ministers of education across South America, and Latin America actually, where these scholars just claimed the need, the, just the, the pressing need to you know, teach Latin and ancient Greek in high school or middle school. And and all these things called my attention, and I and I wondered, you know, why why is this? And and there's also the fact that the organizers of the conference come from a very traditional humanist school, right? That still considers the classics as the cradle of civilization. And, and you know, this is part of the very uh, traditional way of understanding the classics, right? The idea of classical in itself, right, gives some sort of foundational and paradigmatic stature to Greek and Latin ancient texts, right, and authors and cultural practices. Um, And it is, you know, it is embedded in the history of humanism, right, of European humanism and humanism as transplanted into the new world. Um, but I also found that there was something nostalgic, right, uh, in that type of humanism uh, that claimed that the study of ancient Greek and Latin in Latin America was a way to reconnect to, you know, Latin Americans, right, Latin American scholars and communities to a sense of of, of being a human, of humanness. Um, and... I try to explain the way in which there are interesting resonances between this particular uh, example, this particular event, uh, and the four chapters that I study uh, in the rest of the book, right? That how these scholars, right, in the 21st century going to AREC for a conference uh, to just give a paper presentation and to listen to other people's ideas and, and readings, right, end up engaging in a performative event as well, that gestures to, you know, the adaptations, appropriations, transformations, self-definitions, figurations, mythologizations that I study in chapters one, two, three, and four. So I I try to make this connection, and this connection is artificial, right? I mean, it's not, uh, it's not that I'm trying to, to claim that, you know, the 21st century is something like the Neoplatonic uh, uh, summary of 500 years of uh, intersections between the classics and Latin America. This is a narrative exercise, right? It's an artificial uh, and probably flawed to a certain extent attempt to create connections. But I, I do believe that history, in the end, is also that type of artificial construction, right? That it doesn't really represent things as they are, but it provides a narrative to approach things that happened, right? Which is the only way we actually approach reality, ultimately, in my opinion. So, um, 
there were some readers who actually found this uh, chapter a little bit out of place or dissonant or, you know, uh, they deemed it uh, a sort of uh, an exaggeration as a sort of the attempt to overread things or to put too much emphasis on things that's, that didn't mean much. And, and uh, you know, I have been actually, tr- I have tried to modulate the language and I have tried to give, you know, to acknowledge the work of people who are interested in classical studies from all over the planet, right? Especially uh, in a place that has been relegated from classical considerations. But I think that there are ideological dynamics uh, that are still present in the study of the classics in Latin America, just like they are present in the study of the classics in the in the old world in Europe, that that need to be read, right? That need to be disclosed and need to be highlighted. There is something about classicists that uh, that just you know, as in chapter four, right? Sometimes the activity that you are undertaking contaminates your own identity. And, and that's what I try to do in this particular chapter. And so I like it. I like it very much. But it is it was tough to write. And, and you know, it ultimately, there is something self-reflective as well, I think, because I am also 21st Latin American scholar, scholar interested in the classics, right? And who knows the extent of which I also reproduce some of the things that I so diligently highlighted an examine, right? Uh, I do believe that nobody has eyes on the nape of, of your neck, right? And there are things that inevitably occupy your the blind spots of your of your vision. Um, and I wanted to also hint at that, right? That this book, you know, wants to acknowledge those those areas that can be enhanced or improved. Uh, especially when you undertake, you know, such a dilated scope. Absolutely, and I think it does. Um, it actually does that very, very well, right from the the introduction. And you know, there is this this sense of um, you know self self examination and also awareness of you know the subject, but also the context through the centuries that. Uh, these encounters and, you know, pedagogues and mythographers and, you know, um, everything happens. And of course, you know, you can't cover everything in uh, one book, but it really um, sets a very good example, I think, in in this exercise of of being aware um, and acknowledging, right, uh, challenges and shortcomings, but also the possibilities that, you know, 21st century can bring to to the study of classics in Latin America and, you know, having conferences when they will be possible, you know, um, and uh, having tours of, you know, ruins of temples or not, right? Right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, there's nothing wrong in being performative, actually. And, and we have great uh, a great tradition in that regard. And I think that the examples that I give in the book hint at that. I ultimately think that, you know, uh, it makes the whole thing much more fascinating, much more interesting, much more engaging uh, than just this arid, you know, scholarly activity of, you know, dispassionate and detached 
uh, you know, philological dry approach to the classics. No, there, there is an emotional, affective investment in the way these texts are read by certain subjects, right, that are not imagined as, as being, you know, properly privy to the field of classical studies. And, you know, I, I think that I'm one of those because, after all, I'm not a classicist myself. I'm a competitist. Uh, and, you know, we are always... Um, you know, we are always wondering about the limits of our own uh, specializations and, and you know, understandings. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I would really love to continue talking here, but I really think we've, we've taken a lot of your time. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more about your current projects and, and plans as well. Well, very briefly, I plan to engage uh, actively with uh, Atlantis. I I would I I'm, I may actually I don't know if this will come to fruition but I would uh, explore seriously the possibility of writing a book a transhistorical book about Atlantis starting with Atlantis in the 16th century or even in you know the late 15th century I'm talking about Columbus uh, I mean and in in moving from there to you know, some of the wildest things that have... I mean, there's this epic poem, Ten Cantos, that imagine that that was based on uh, two treatises that claimed that the Tupi-Guarani, right, an indigenous community of Brazil came from the descendants of Atlantis and that Atlantis in its destruction also revealed the oil that then is going to be mined by Petrobras you know, the powerful oil company of Brazil. And all this is transformed into a script that that is pitched to Petrobras in order to make a movie out of it. So this is the type of weird thing that happens when you bring a classical narrative into the new world, right? And, And I would love to actually undertake the research related to, to, to Atlantis. Uh, I'm also, you know, trying to also shift gears a little bit. So I'm right now. Uh, I've been teaching world literature for a long time, and I'm trying to actually historicize a little bit the uh, the recent emergence of new paradigms of world literature, starting with you know the turn of the century, um, and and that is another field of study that I'm interested in interrogating. I'm also I, I in, in this context I want to to be able to say a little bit more about the concept of circulation that is so you know, sort of gravitant so so much at the core of what world literature uh, is right in this particular point in time uh, because I think that we can historicize also circulation and we can explain circulation in different modalities that are not symmetrical, right? Circulation of people, circulation of capital and circulation of power are not things that happen at the same time, especially when we compare them to the circulation of text. So uh, those are the two venues that I'm going to be exploring, right? My work as a world literature scholar, and I think that circulation and all that stuff is already a substantial element of my book, of my first book. And I want to explore it more explicitly, but just in the line of my previous research, I want, I want to see how much I can do with Atlantis, 
because I love the whole story of it and what has been done in the name of this lost continent, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, to the next book and to talking about Atlantis as well. I, I like it very much. Uh, and also it's, um, it's different iteration uh, in different locales, right, um, that, that we can see. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to reading uh, more of, of your research and the books that will come. And I want to thank you very, very much for talking to us today, Dr. Campos Munoz. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, this was a great opportunity for me to you know, talk about my book, and I hope that people enjoy it. I am sure of that. Thank you so much. Well, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.